0: Uh, my name is Tom Ricks, I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree, so I'll add my welcome and good morning uh, to the folks who have already greeted you, we're glad to be together today. We're in a fall sermon series, uh, we have about three more weeks to go before we, uh, we get pretty close to Advent and start thinking about Christmas, and so we're going to continue this morning asking the question, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus as a a disciple in every area of my life. And we're going to look at a specific area this morning. I want to remind us of our theme verse. I do this both Sundays, but I want to bring us back to it. Uh, The goal is to be like Jesus. A disciple, Jesus says, is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So what is it like for you and for me to follow Jesus in every aspect of our lives? Uh, About a week ago, Thursday, I was over at Caldy's Coffee Shop right over here in downtown Kirkwood, and I was having breakfast with my good friend, Michael Miller. Uh, Michael Miller is a smart guy. He's on the teaching and research faculty at Washington University. He's one of the leading physical therapists in the world that works with amputees. I am not the smartest or the sharpest pencil in the box, but I have a couple letters behind my name and, I'm, and I can, I can kind of sort of keep up. So you got two guys, one really, really smart and one quasi, the little bit smart, sitting in there having a cup of coffee when the fire alarm goes off. Now, there are probably another 15 customers in there. It's around seven o'clock in the morning. And uh, the folks that go into... Either Caldys or Spencers. That time of day, we all live by the same creed: be quiet and leave everybody else alone. And so Michael and I are just enjoying our nice, quiet conversation. There's a couple of people reading the paper; they're not bothering anybody. There's a couple other people chatting. We're all doing fine when the fire alarm goes off: beep, 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 beep. really loud, really long. Guess what? Nobody does. Nobody gets up. Nobody goes outside. In fact, Michael and I look at each other, and as I look at him, and then I look around the restaurant, everybody has the same disgusted look on their face. Who set off the fire alarm, and when are they going to turn the dumb thing off? And so finally, literally, after a couple minutes of me going, well, I don't know if we can even keep this conversation going, the manager comes around and says, you people need to leave the building. <laughs> and we went, Oh. Maybe there's actually a fire going on. So we get up, we walk out. I kid you not, there was a woman that was sitting there reading the paper, and she was saying to herself, I am not getting up. I am not getting up. And as far as I know, she's still over there saying the same thing. She never left the building. And so we're sitting out front, and the fire department shows up, and Michael look at each other surprised like, wow, I guess there really was a fire of some sort. You know, there, there comes a moment in our lives or a variety of moments in our lives where we just tune out something that's actually really important. Probably everybody here grew up in, in the American school system, unless you're homeschooled and maybe even did it if you're homeschooled, you maybe probably should, you have fire drills. And the fire alarm gets off and the teacher tells you how to get out of the building and tells you which way to go and what you're supposed to do. And as you get older, you know, you go to college and there's a prank. Somebody pulls a fire alarm every once in a while and you get a little desensitized to it. And then, you know, you hear car alarms going off and you look at the cars right there and nobody's robbing it. So I guess the alarm doesn't. And all of a sudden, alarms don't mean anything to us. All of a sudden, it's like they're not even there. And we travel that road at our own risk <laughs> because the alarm may be very real. I believe that the Western Church, and, I, and I'm not talking about Green Tree. I'm talking about the Western Church as a whole, has grown deaf to the notion of gracious generosity, of following Jesus into generosity. I feel like that's a message that we we cannot hear because, for many of us, we've held it at a bit of arm's length we've tuned it out a bit. We kind of go with the notion of there's a the preacher talking for money for the church again, as if that relieves me of all responsibility to follow Jesus in a generosity. So we're going to talk for the next few weeks about what it means to follow Jesus, to, to not be deaf when it comes to this particular topic. Now, Tommy, you might say, How, what proof do you have? How do you know that the Western church is, is leaning that direction at least. And so for those of you that, that are, uh, I, I think in a good way, honestly asking the question, uh, I want to help us understand this clearly. So I went this week to a website called uh, NP, and those are the initials, the letters N and P, uh, NP Source. NP Source is not, doesn't just follow... Christian giving, but it follows not profit across the entire spectrum of the United States. So if you want to know what people in Dubuque, Iowa gave to the United Way, as opposed to what people in Kissimmee, Florida gave the United Way, you could go to this website and you could find out that information. They cover the gamut when it comes to giving, to charitable giving in the United States. So a small portion of that is included in their research as the church. Let me give you just a little bit of data. Christians currently. This is the 2018 stats. 19 haven't come out yet. Uh, 2018. Christians are giving at a 2.5 percent of income rate. This is down from the 3.3 rate that Christians gave at during the Great Depression. Three to five percent of Americans who gave to their local church do so through regular tithing. Now, tithing is the the uh, biblical teaching that we give 10% of our income, a tithe and 10% you're, you're, you're saying the same thing. Uh, so scripture teaches us that we should be investing 10% of our income into God's kingdom. Uh, 3 to 5% of Americans are doing that at their local church. However, when surveyed, 17% of Americans claim that they're regularly tithing. So not only are we not tithing, but now we're making up stories about tithing. Or perhaps we're giving to other places besides uh, our church. But the, the data would indicate uh, that perhaps we're, we're hedging our bets a little bit. For families making 75000 plus, 1% of them gave a tithe. 37% of regular church attendees and evangelicals don't give any money, to the church, 17% of American families have reduced the amount they give to their church. 7% of church growers have dropped regular giving by more than 20%. There's some good news as well. 77% of those who tithe give 11 to 20% or more than their income, uh, more than their 10% of their income, far more than the baseline of 10%. Uh, and one other encouraging note, 7 out of 10 tithers. Do so based on their gross and not on their net income. Uh, I believe this is one of the challenges that the Church of Jesus Christ faces today. That we, uh, and, and understandably so, we live in a culture that applauds and lauds uh, accumulation of wealth. You can be a person who abuses family members, but if you have made it uh, in the wealth side of things, there, there's a lot that'll be forgiven there. Uh, because you are "quote unquote" successful, we claim to follow a person who takes great disagreement with that type of thinking. Do we follow him uh, into generous giving? Second Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through nine is our text this morning. Follow along on the screen uh, or in your Bible as Paul talks to the Corinthians about a radical generosity, a gracious generosity. Hear the word of God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, Titus was one of Paul's uh, traveling companions, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we have worshiped you with our our hearts this morning. Uh, The songs that uh, the worship team led us in uh, were songs that reminded us that we belong to you. Uh, that all praise belongs to Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, that we are we are in the family of God. We are not slaves, we are not orphans, we are not strangers, we are children of God because of the grace, because of the generous grace, uh, the unspeakable, matchless grace of our Lord Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. So, Father, our our, our hearts uh, feel in tune with uh, your worship. We pray now that our minds would follow. We pray that we would worship you with our intellect, with our thinking, with our reasoning, that as we walk through this passage, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would unfold it to us, that we would follow the Lord Jesus faithfully in all things. Lord, we know it's a journey. We know, we know we'll know we fall short. We know we won't always live up to that which we confess, but Father, we pray that you would take this word and that you would use it in our lives today for our encouragement, for our correction, for direction for us, for all the things that you promise it will do in order to grow us more and more to be like our Lord and Savior Jesus. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be in the way of your teaching today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've already somewhat mentioned the sermon in a sentence this morning. It's actually a question. What does it mean for a disciple to follow Jesus in generous giving? What does it mean for those of us who are disciples? to follow Jesus into generous giving. There is a lot that this text has to say. I'm going to give you four observations. I I got an extra hour of sleep last night like everybody else did, so I want to give you the 14 observations I found in this text and feel like I have the energy to do so, but I'm going to limit it this morning. But let me encourage you to to go back and look at it a little bit more, and we're going to stay in this text for this week and the next two weeks uh, because I think it will be helpful for us as we wrestle uh, with this question. That's, that's one of the tougher questions for us, uh, given some of the circumstances I've already mentioned. So uh, what we're going to do this morning is couch all four of these observations under the heading of what I must know uh, in order to see this develop in my life. That's how Paul starts off. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. So a couple things there. When Paul is writing his letters, occasionally he will want to kind of bore in on something. He'll kind of want to get to something that he knows is going to be difficult, but is very important. And this is the type of language he uses. He'll say, I want you to know, it's almost like he's kind of waving a bit of a flag and saying, hey, really pay careful attention here. And then he goes with the very familiar term of brothers. Now, Ladies, please don't be offended by that. You're actually included in that statement. But in Paul's day and age, in his culture, that was the way in which he wrote. But he was writing to to the entire church. And what he was saying to his family is, there's something very important here that I don't want you to miss, and it's all around the grace of God. The grace of God is what we're talking about. It's the foundation for the conversation. Everything else I'm going to say, what Paul is writing, is coming from God's grace to us. There are four things that I'm gonna point out in this text that I think we must know in order to follow Jesus into generous giving. The first is this. Gracious generosity is active. It's not passive. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. We'll come back to some of those other words in just a minute, but notice here the abundance of joy. Notice here that that where they ended up in their activity was born out of what they felt in their hearts, what they understood in their minds. It was their response to the gospel of grace that had been preached to them. So any activity on my part, when it comes to generosity, ought to be uh, motivated, ought to, the foundation of it, ought to be a joy in my heart that sets me free to give in a way, whereas before I wouldn't have even considered that. So, and later on, Paul will say a few verses later, in chapter 9, God loves a cheerful giver. It's the same notion of joy. So if you're here this morning, you say, boy, I, it feels like a duty to me every time, I, you know, every time I, I, I part with some of my money for the church or for this cause or for that cause, uh, therefore I'm off the hook because God says that, that, that it ought to be joyful. I'm not joyful, so I don't have to do it. Well, you got part of it, right? The part you got right is you're not joyful. <laughs> the part you're missing is that you're not to stay there. You're to seek the Holy Spirit and the word of God to lead you to a joyful place to where giving is actually something that pleases your heart and your mind because that's when you become active. That's when you you get after it. Where's your happy place? Where's your place of joy? It might be, you know, sitting around the table with your family, just hanging out, having a conversation. It might be, you know, a certain project that you get to work on at work and you just know when you get it right, it's really going to help the company and it's just a place of great joy for you might be a place with friends or neighbors. It might, for, for me, it has to do with places like hockey rinks uh, or, or places where you can hit a little white ball and try to knock it into a hole. There, there are places that are just filled with joy. Nobody has to twist my arm when they have blues tickets. Like, oh, I guess I'll go again if I have to. It, it's not out of duty. It's a sense of joy. Where's your joy? Is generosity part of that? Is, is generosity a place of joy for me? If not, then I need to ask the Lord to move me in that direction. Because out of the overflow, out of this wealth of generosity, what does it say? It says they gave. Their poverty actually came together with their generosity. Not their wealth, their poverty. We're gonna to come to that. Their poverty and their generosity came together. And what happened? Because of the joy that was in their heart, they gave. Can I say, is that true about my giving. And it's not just about giving of of my money, it could be giving of other things. Uh, This is November, and in the Rick's household, in November, uh, at this point in our lives, it's all about uh, the Turkey Day hallways at Kirkwood High School. So my wife uh, works at Kirkwood High School. Part of what she does, she's a class sponsor, and and she takes a group from ninth grade all the way through twelfth grade. She has the tenth graders this year, so at least we have some young men and women that are starting to be able to drive cars, which helps us just a little bit. But we spend the whole month getting ready to decorate the, the Turkey Day Hallway. So the kids have a hallway. The 10th graders have a hallway. They pick a theme and they go crazy with these decorations. In the last eight days, there have been at least 80 10th graders from Kirkwood High School in and out of my house on a regular basis. And I'll walk in and there'll be 25 of them scattered all over the great room and stuff all over the place. And I'll walk in and go, who are you people? And what are you doing in my house? And they'll look at me like, who are you? Stop bothering us. And they'll go right back to doing what they were doing. And, and then my wife will come and Cindy will come and they'll go, oh, Ms. Ricks, we, look at this, look at that. And they'll just go crazy. I'm like, not even yesterday's news, but Mrs. Ricks is like way, way up here. Why? Because she gives them love and compassion out of the joy of her heart. It's not because she has to do it. She, nobody making her be a class sponsor. She wants to do it because it's something that she wants to give. That's her, her place of joy. Where's your place of joy? How's giving? How's your giving impacted? How's my giving impacted by the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Gracious generosity is active based on God's joy, but also gracious generas- generosity is other oriented. What, what was the need that, that these folks were? They were begging to help uh, give uh, and relief for the needs of the saints. What was going on in their particular day and age? Well, in Jerusalem at that time, so down in, in Judea and that area around Jerusalem, and, and Acts speaks to this, but also historical documentation speaks to this, there was a severe drought. That was happening which was led to a famine and people were literally dying by the hundreds. People could barely keep body and soul together. What food there was was so overpriced that the common person couldn't afford it and it was literally a, a, a disaster of unmitigated proportions. People were literally just dying all over the place. And so the churches to the north were being told about this, and they're like, well, we're not going through a famine, and we have resources, and we can contribute, so we want to help those folks down in Jerusalem. So that's the specific need that they were reaching, but each of us have to wrestle with gracious generosity in the needs that are before us today. Paul says that they gave out of their own accord, which I think is an interesting phrase out of their own accord, says that they made up their minds. They determined, they decided that it was important for them to take part in the relief for the saints. Where are the needs for relief in our world today? I'll be even more specific about it, more narrow about it. What are the needs at Green Tree Community Church? This isn't just about taking care of folks outside of our congregation. It starts with taking care of one another within our own congregation, but it also obviously includes the larger community. Relief these days probably comes in different forms than it did. We're not going through a famine right now. A lot of technology and advancement in farming pretty much keeps us protected against that. But there are desperate needs in other areas. There's need for friendship. There's need for genuine, authentic relationships. We spend our lives looking down and punching buttons. And we need To be connected with one another in a deeper level, you'd be surprised at how many people you see every day that are smiling at you that are just absolutely in turmoil on the inside. We need talent. We need abilities put to practice. The tutoring program that has been launched, and we hope to expand throughout the Kirkwood School District. It takes time and effort to come alongside those children and support them. Our own Stephen ministry that seeks to care emotionally for our congregation And you think about the financial investment it takes to make sure that we have ongoing discipleship and and the opportunity to support world missions and the worship ministry of this church, the teaching ministry of this church, and on and on and on it goes. And I'm just talking about green tree. We haven't even looked beyond that. But all of that is other oriented. All of that is me saying to the Lord, use me to care for others. Gracious generosity is always other oriented. Thirdly. Gracious generosity is, by definition, sacrificial. The way Paul introduces this notion is that there was a severe test of affliction, not on the church in Jerusalem, there was certainly that, but now he's talking about the generous folks. He's talking about the Macedonians and what compelled them to give, what compelled them to help the folks down in Jerusalem. Well, it started as a severe test of, of affliction. What's this test of affliction? It's the test of affliction that will God provide. If we give, will there be enough left over that we would survive? Uh, Is God going to take care of us? You see, the Macedonians didn't live in an extraordinarily wealthy place. Uh, Historian and theologian, Simon Kitzmacher, I love his name, If I was Simon Kitzmacher, I'd just automatically be smarter than I am right now. That's just such a great name. But Simon Kitzmacher is a theologian, he's also a historian, and he writes this about the state of the economy around the Macedonian churches at the time that Paul was writing. Two centuries before Paul came to Macedonia, gold mines in that province provided a measure of wealth for its population. But during the first century of the Christian era, right when Paul was penning this letter, The economy had deteriorated and the province was brought to the depths of poverty. Wars, barbarian invasions, Roman settlement, the restructuring of the province had all contributed to a dismal financial status. Not only in the countryside, but also the urban centers, including the Romanized cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, were impoverished. Conversely, the city of Corinth flourished financially because of the volume of trade that its two harbors generated. In brief, there was a distinct difference between Macedonia and Corinth in economic terms. Generosity, gracious generosity, is sacrificial. It means giving even when the, the common sense thing to do might be to hold back. Why? Because you're wrestling with this question. Can I trust God? Specifically, can I trust God to provide for me and for mine? And that is a tough question. Now, I've, I'm 60 years old, and if you ask me today, Tom, between birth and today, we're going to give you the whole span of your life. Can you please give us one, two, three, four, or five examples of where God has failed you and has not been faithful to provide? The answer unequivocally would be no. No. It doesn't mean we always had all the money we thought we should have. It doesn't mean we always had things easy and simple. It doesn't mean there weren't times where we had less money, i.e. children in college, two children at the same time. For those of you that are looking down the barrel, that one, come cry on my shoulder. <laughs> I'll be happy to commiserate with you. There are certainly times when life brought challenges that were financial. But has there ever been a moment in my life where God has, has not been faithful, where God has ignored the needs of me and my family? The answer is unequivocally no. That doesn't mean that generosity isn't sacrificial. What it does mean is that I can trust God. And that taking that part of the equation off the table leads me to a more gracious generosity because I embrace the sacrifice. I welcome the sacrifice. I actually say, God, allow this to be sacrificial, make it sacrificial in my life because remember what the end result is. I want to be like Jesus. And we're gonna see in a moment the sacrifice of Jesus. But by definition, gracious generosity, discipleship is sacrificial. Notice how they gave. They gave out of a wealth of generosity. That's an attitude. That's not, that's not an action. That's the attitude behind the, behind the action. And notice where that led them. It led them to give not only according to their means, but beyond their means. There, there's the sacrifice right there. That the Christians in Macedonia said, we don't have it all that great, but we're going to give because we know We can trust God, and we know our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem desperately need this sacrifice on our part. I want to introduce you this morning to a man, maybe you've heard of him before, I had not. His name is John Robert Fox. He was part of the greatest generation. He fought in the Second World War. By all accounts, he was a smart and diligent young man, and he earned a scholarship at Wilberforce University where he signed up for reserve officer training. And when he uh, he, he eventually graduated, he finished college with a graduate degree, not just an undergraduate degree. He also graduated the rank of second lieutenant. When the war broke out, he was given his commission and he joined the 92nd Infantry Division. We pick up the story in 1944, where Fox and the rest of his division find themselves fighting the Nazis in Italy. It was here in December of that year he was tasked to stay behind in a small village in Tuscany. The village had been overrun by the Nazis. The Americans were in full retreat. Fox found a house in which to hide. And from the second floor, he used his radio to contact his colleagues. He called for artillery fire to be directed at the village in order to give the U.S. forces time to retreat, regroup, and then launch a counterattack. Eventually, Fox specifically ordered a barrage of fire on his exact position, In a state of panic, the the gunner who received the message frantically pointed out to him that that was his position, assuming it must have been some kind of mistake. Fox, however, simply replied, fire it. There are more of them than there are of us. U.S. forces indeed regrouped and counterattacked and retook the village. Fox was found where he died. Surrounded by over a hundred enemy combatants. To be a soldier means to sacrifice. To be a disciple of Jesus means to sacrifice. Do we welcome that sacrifice? Do we embrace that sacrifice? Do we say, Lord, use me by any means possible? And understanding that when those moments of testing come, those, those moments where it's a test perhaps even of affliction that we know we can trust in him and his ultimate goal that we be like Christ. Our eternity is secure. What is somebody going to take away from you if your eternity is secure? Your life? Not possible. You, you could use your, lose your human life on this earth, but that's not even a drop in the bucket compared to the eternal life that Christ has secured for you and for me. So the cry of our heart ought to be to welcome and embrace whatever sacrifice God asks in order to grow his kingdom. I told a story a few years ago, might, might be repetitive to some of you, about a pastor who was aware of a, a single mom who had five young children uh, at Christmas time, and they were, they were pretty poor. They were pretty destitute. And so he reached into his own pocket and called a few of his friends and asked them to reach in their pocket. And they put together a really nice uh, Christmas day meal for the family and he said I'll I'll take it over on Christmas day so he put on his, his hat and his gloves and his boots and he went to the home and knocked on the door and the woman came to the door with a shawl around her because there wasn't much heat in her house and and he said with a smile on his face uh, would you happen to know a family uh, in the area that could use a good Christmas meal uh, and, and being a pastor who oftentimes you got to figure out kind of how to break the ice, I, I appreciate what he was trying to do there, uh, trying to be kind-spirited and friendly. And the woman said, just a minute. She slammed the door on him. And she came back a couple minutes later as he stood on the porch kind of wondering what was going on. And she had on her coat and her hat and her gloves and her boots. And she said, let's go. And they trudged up the road. And at the end of the road, they trudged down a trail and up the hill a little ways to a ramshackle house that was worse than hers. She looked at the pastor, she said, these guys need a Christmas meal. Sacrifice, welcoming sacrifice, embracing sacrifice, understanding that Christ lived for me in order, not that I might just be a consumer of that grace, but that I might live for others as one who shares that grace with a generous spirit, which leads me to my fourth observation of this text. My generosity must always be based on his. This is not about a duty. This is not about working harder to be generous. This is about fixing our eyes on Jesus and allowing Him to grow generosity in our hearts. Remember how Paul started off the passage. There's some things that we need you to know, brothers and sisters, church family. There's some things that we need to you need some instruction in this. But not here. Paul says. Paul says you already know something. What do we know? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you might not know a lot, but you know one thing for sure: God's grace and God's mercy, and God's compassion. If you don't know that grace, you can't be a Christian. The definition of being a Christian is accepting the grace and the mercy of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, on your behalf, free to you, and cost him everything. And putting your trust in that gift and his resurrection to secure your eternal life. That, by definition, is being a Christian. And Paul says, you know this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. What do we know? We know we've received the gospel of grace. And Paul is now simply reminding us what we know, that Jesus was rich, yet he gave all of that up so that those who could never purchase their own salvation could become rich in grace. In other words, Jesus was generous to meet our need. I asked a few minutes ago, what's, what's the need in our church in our community. Probably all of you had some thought of it. Some of you might have thought of the children in our church. Some of you might have thought of folks who need extra care in our church. Some of you might have thought of out there in the community of people. But we all thought of folks who have a need. Jesus thought of your need when he went to the cross. Jesus thought of my need when he went to the cross. He met that need and now he invites us to follow him. So where do we go from here? How do we follow Jesus into generous giving, into a gracious generosity that truly genuinely reflects his gospel. Well, first thing we need to know, and I have, I have three brief points in a, uh, application and will be done. The first is this, we need to understand that it's a process. So there's a picture of me on my daughter's wedding day. And uh, she got married in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, that's where she lives. And that's us about nine o'clock at night doing the father daughter dance. Uh, and notice the words that are on the screen, because I was petrified of those five minutes, because I'm the worst dancer in the history of the world. I have no rhythm, I love music, I have no rhythm, Uh, I have no ability, Uh, and so I knew I needed some help with this. So I actually went and got lessons. We went to a gal down at Brentwood, I drugged Cindy with me, I said, I gotta get lessons and I'm gonna be dancing with you part of the night too, so why don't you come with me? And she had the bruises to prove it. I'm pretty sure every time I walked through that door, the dancing instructor went, oh Lord. You know, everybody has their cross to bear, and here comes mine. Uh, And I literally took three months of of lessons so I could survive and not destroy my daughter's feet on her wedding night. Some of us are starting from a point of being really stingy. Some of us are starting from a point of hoarding everything we have and thinking that that's a really good and desirous way to approach life. Some of us are starting this morning from a point of being... uh, Christ-like in our generosity, and and you guys are way ahead of the rest of us. you got to bring us along with you. It doesn't matter where you start this morning. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not here to to pound the pulpit and say how bad you people are if you don't give. What we're saying is Scripture invites us to the life-changing transformational relationship with Jesus Christ that could actually make us a people who live in the essence of greed with an open and generous hand. How crazy would that be? What would the world see if we actually lived that way? But understand it's a process. Wherever your first lesson is, it's okay. Maybe you've already had your first lesson and you can teach us. But maybe this morning you're like, I don't even wanna go to the lesson. Well, that's a place to start. Jesus can meet us there. So how do we begin to move? Well, the first is this. Let me encourage all of us to spend some time in thoughtful prayer, seeking to identify the obstacles And the fears and the sinful patterns that may be stunting uh, our growth in gracious generosity. Where are you today? That would be a little bit of self-assessment. I think would be very, very wise on each of our parts. Even those of us that are already ahead of the rest of us. We all struggle with fears or with concerns, with obstacles. Some practices we've gotten into that just, it's gotten away from us. Secondly, once I begin to identify those things, confess those to my father. You know, going to the father for, with your confession is one of the only places you can go uh, and say you did something wrong where somebody isn't going to make you pay for it because <laughs> Jesus already paid for it. If, if you're stingy and that's where you start, starting out, guess what? Jesus already paid for it. The anger that I have in my heart, Jesus has already paid for it. So we don't, we don't celebrate our sin and do it more, but we know we have a safe place to go. Say, father, I'm, I'm way behind in this one. I need to confess that I'm just flat out wrong here. You know, our father says, come up and sit in my lap, child. Let's talk about that. Let you and me work on that together because there's places I want to take you that are so brilliant and so phenomenal and so filled with my love and grace. You can't even begin to imagine it. It's a place to confess our struggles with our father and then pray to that same father that he will grow us in gracious generosity. And oh, by the way, don't be afraid to ask other people for help. Don't be afraid to say to a brother or sister in Christ, this is where I'm really struggling. How, how, can I, how can I move in a better direction in this area of my life? Jesus invites us into a life of generous giving. Will we follow him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Uh, thank you for those dance lessons. that I There was somebody that knew how to do it and could teach even me. Father, I thank you that Although we live in a culture that celebrates wealth more than just about anything else and tries to convince us that we should hold it and hold it tight, we should look down upon those who don't have as much, we've got to make sure we have enough in our retirement because we're the only ones who are going to take care of ourselves, Lord. All of those lies uh, seep into our, 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 our practices and the way we think. So, Father, we need your transforming power to to change us. Not that we would be financially irresponsible, but that we would live out the gracious generosity that the Lord Jesus has given us. We pray you would grow us in this. For your glory, for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.